Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I am so happy to be in your office, Ross Martin. It's fun to have you here. I didn't, uh, you know, it's like we have such a social relationship on the interwebs. I know. I don't get to see you in person. I know. I feel like it's been quite some time and I know you have a lot going on. So I really appreciate you doing this. Listen, I listen to your podcast. So uh, for me, this is fun. Like I, li- I get to actually be on. It's so cool. And I listen to yours. And by the way, I got to say, my kids actually find your podcast inspiring too. They listen? Uh, yeah. Well, I've exposed them to some of it because they're listening when I'm listening sometimes and like it's inspiring. Because you're hearing like people from all walks of life who are total characters in their own right and all of whom have like, you know, succeeded, but never the same way and never in a linear way. They've all failed in some way along the way. Well. Sorry. I just want to wear one of these while we're. Yeah, totally. Thank you, Anita. All right. So you're seeing me put on my sweatshirt for the first time. Um, (laughs) I don't know if it looks good on me or not, but here's the thing. Like the drawstrings are going to be yellow. Right here they're black, but we're we're, going to make them yellow. I love it. Nice. I love it. Okay, so Ross, you are the president of Known, which is the first true marketing science company. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, look, if we back up for a second, and this is like one of my first interviews on the record after I, we've announced. I'm so honored. So like the state of marketing is broken and everybody knows it, whether you're at an agency and you're supremely unhappy because of the culture that you're forced to work in or the work that you get to do and the pressures on you there, or you're a client and your job is to find a way to express the power and potential of your brand and business, but you don't know where to turn to actually get trusted support that you can count on. And so what we're doing is we've created a new kind of marketing company and it's built on science. This represents a moment in time where three different companies are coming together Shearson Associates, which is 18 years old. It's a consumer intelligence and data science consultancy. Stun, which is 20 years old, a production company and creative agency in Los Angeles, which has won every award you can think of. And then Blackbird, my little baby, that I started less than three years ago. And these three are coming together because science, strategy, and creative should not be separate. And in fact, creative without science is dead. So we've launched this business. Um, we actually have been working as a team for probably a year. Ooh, Black Ops. You're very good at Black Ops. The Say hardest that. thing was keeping this stuff um, under wraps. 
But the cool thing now is that it's out. People know. And like the response has been incredible. I mean, not just from friends and family, but I think the industry has seen that what we are doing is something that's long overdue. And we're not the only ones who see this opportunity. So many others are either doing or trying to do this and will. Um, but I think you're witnessing known as a part of a larger shift in the industry itself. And it's long overdue. Well, you have always been a pioneer and I'm such a fan of you as a human, but certainly for your work that you've done. And I want to have everyone hear about your incredible career. Clearly now you're at Known. Previously, you were the founder and CEO of Blackbird, but you are also, hello, an Emmy award-winning and Peabody award-winning marketer and innovation leader who has been... <laughs> inducted into the Advertising Hall of Achievement. You've been listed in Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. And the list of awards was so long. Honestly, I was like, I can't. I'm it's just going to like let people yeah. look you up. It's because all It's all good. But previous to starting Blackbird, you spent 13 years in creative and business leadership roles at Viacom. A full bar mitzvah. A full bar mitzvah. So well said. And your last role there was Executive Vice President of Marketing Strategy and Engagement. You were the chairman of the Viacom Marketing Council from 2015 to 2017, leading their global marketing, which included Comedy Central, South Park, The Daily Show, Nickelodeon, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, TV Land's Younger, such a fan of Younger, by the way. And I mean, the list goes on. And, you know, of course, MTV in there as well. You know, I think essentially your career has been so inspirational because you've never stayed inside the box of no. anything. No. Is that your nature? I, it is. You know, there. <laughs> I don't think about it that way, um, but it, it's true. And it, like, I find myself in uncomfortable situations because of it all the time. But there's the line from the T.S. Eliot poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, where he says, do I dare disturb the universe? Oh, it's a good one. And it's like, it's kind of hard to imagine like getting up for work if that's not, I don't know, a possibility. Right. Like it's like life can be a little bit boring if you don't make it interesting for yourself. And like I get bored pretty easily. And I'm only, I think, at my best when I'm challenged to do things that I'm not sure I can actually achieve. When you say it's gotten you in trouble, I mean, give me an example. Look, there are so many examples of people who don't like me for something <laughs> I tried to do. And I wasn't <laughs> trying to be an asshole. I was just trying to do, you know, grow the business or whatever it was. I don't know. You know, I'll give you an example. So, I remember at one of the companies I worked at, which will remain nameless, I was doing something that was definitely provocative, but I believed, and I think many others did, it really needed to happen. We needed to try it. But it, it pissed off an executive who was older than me and more senior at the time. And he called me up to his office, top floor corner office. Yikes. Yeah, it is a yikes moment. And I was nervous because I knew it wasn't going to be good, or at least I felt it in my bones. And so I get to his office. And he says, Ross, how do I say this? You need to stay, you need to stay in your damn lane. And I'm like, oh shit. And I couldn't believe someone would actually look you in the face and say that. Like I was stepping on his toes and he didn't like it. And that's how he was going to react. And by the way, it's a very human way to react because he felt threatened. And my job was like, clearly I didn't accomplish what I should have, which is to make him comfortable from the very beginning, to set some context and create a safe space for us to work together. 
right? That's not his fault that I put him in that position. He's just responding to it. And, you know, in an inelegant way, that didn't make me feel very good. But I learned a lesson, which was, if you're going to do something provocative, that's going to probably upset some people or make them uncomfortable, at least create some context for that. Not in service of yourself, but in service of the idea that you believe in. Mm-hmm. If you really, really want to see this thing get done or have a chance, then create the context for it to succeed. Otherwise, it's subject to all kinds of factors out of your control that are basic human nature. So well said, and I guess a great lesson. But you're the same. Like you are, yes, because your entire career you've done things that aren't quite like, you know, the way everything has been done before. Like your use of social for a brand made me think differently about what was possible for brands to do in the world. Yes. Thank you. But nobody was doing it back then. In fashion, I feel like. Yeah, but fashion was like, you can't touch that. Like, don't fuck with fashion. It's so premium and. Yeah. Let's just say you were you were in rare air, right? Like, I mean, clearly I don't belong in fashion. Look at me. But I was always impressed because you seem – I don't like the word fearless because I think fear is a good thing. But you did seem to be bold and unafraid. Thank you. Yeah. Wait, why don't you like the word fearless? I think we need fear. Why? Because it teaches us what to watch out for, be aware of, um, what could threaten us. I think fear is a really healthy thing. I don't run away from fear. I run at it. The reason I called Blackbird Blackbird is because I'm afraid of birds flying into me. And I was like trying to find the courage to actually leave a super comfortable job in corporate America and go do something new and grow again and be excited about it. And like, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to leave a safe perch, right? It does. So I was walking across Canal Street and there are three things in life that I'm afraid of. One, going to prison. I don't want. I don't want to go to prison. That's so random. But do, you, do you want to go to prison? No, but like, who thinks about prison? I just don't want to get in trouble. It's like a Jewish guilt thing. I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> I didn't do whatever it is that they say I did. I didn't do it. And by the way, because of this, I bought guiltyhusband.com and guiltyboyfriend.com. I own those. Domains. I haven't done anything with them, but I'm afraid. I just don't want to get in trouble. You're so funny. Do you want to get in trouble? I don't want to get in trouble. The second thing, I'm afraid of squirrels. Random again. I hate squirrels. And my wife, Jordana, is really, really good at calling squirrels. Like she knows how to make the sounds that make them come. Why would you want them to come? Because she's fucking with me. Oh, God. Like we'll be walking in the park and like squirrels will come running because she's (laughs) calling them because she knows I'm afraid of them. Just to mess with me. And the third thing is I'm afraid of birds flying into me. Is that a Hitchcock thing? It may be a Hitchcock thing. Like I can't watch that movie because it's (laughs) terrifying. But I'm, I'm crossing Canal Street. This did actually happen. and. A bird flew into me, like it hit me in the neck and it, it spazzed out. Sorry, I don't it spa- mean no, it's funny. It spazzed out like in my neck and I lost complete control <laughs> in the middle of traffic. Like I'm crossing the street and there's hundreds of people now watching me have a meltdown, like a total meltdown because this bird just literally lost its shit on me. Like it just lo- lost control and I lost control and I'm just sitting there screaming like a little baby. And from that moment on, as soon as I recovered, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to wait for the next bird to fly into me. Ah, I'm going to fly metaf- right into the bird. Metaphor. I like yeah. It. I like so it. So that's why I called the blackbird. You're so brilliant. I can't. Okay. So you, I mean, your history is unbelievable. We have to really dig into this for everyone to hear. So let's start with where did you grow up? 
I was born in Westfield, New Jersey. Okay. But I was reborn in Brooklyn. Ah, you're such a Brooklyn boy. I really feel like I was born in Brooklyn. I mean, my first job was in Brooklyn. My first real apartment was in Brooklyn. And I've been in Brooklyn for more than two decades. And you've got the beanie and the beard and, you know, you're just fitting right in. Well, I do look like I'm from Williamsburg with this beard right now. I mean, there's something either hipster or Hasidic. I don't know. I'm like kind of hipster Hasidic in the between. Perfect. What were you like as a kid? Um, I did not want anyone to see me. Really? Why? Yeah. Because I was bullied. Really? Yeah. And I was, I was definitely, I was beat up. Why? I don't know. I'm so sad to hear that. Yeah. It's Picturing little Ross. I know. And I, I, yeah, definitely it's true. But you know, like you sort of have two ways to go there and I'm, I'm not a victim. And even though I didn't know how to fight back then and defend myself, I knew that later at some point in my life, I would find the courage and the confidence to, you know, be myself and achieve and not back down from anybody. I mean, I'm so glad you're sharing this because I think so many people, and honestly, not even just kids. I mean, there's workplace bullies all the time and there's so many different forms of it. And I think having the courage to sort of power through it is really important. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the most rewarding experiences of my life was getting to work with Stephanie and Cynthia Germanata. So Stephanie is Lady Gaga, and they created the Born This Way Foundation. And so much of it was about trying to empower, especially young people who are being bullied and suffering, to find their inner strength, Mm -hmm. find one another and support one another, and end it. It was amazing, like later in life, to get to work with the Born This Way Foundation and help them craft a message that was aimed directly at kids like me who for no reason were getting picked on and bullied and whose self-esteem was plummeting. And um, so to be able to take whatever I've got, like whoever I know, whatever I'm capable of or good at and direct it at that was, you know, an extraordinary experience. I love when things like that happen. It's like so full circle. Totally. So amazing. Did you want to be anything specific? No, see, this is the thing. And I think some of the episodes of the Leave Your Mark podcast, you've got guests who knew exactly what they wanted to be when they grew up. I'm not one of them. In fact, I still have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. I don't. Do you want me to write your personal branding story for you? Because I've got it down pat. You're sweet. I mean, like the irony of that is that today, like much of what we do here is help our clients, whether they're big brands, small brands, or executives know themselves, right? So known is about knowing yourself, Ah. knowing your audience, knowing what's possible for you to achieve, and then going out and doing it, right? And all of that, you can call marketing, you can call it advertising, you can call it whatever you want. But it starts with a basic understanding of fundamentally who you are and what's your true north. Mm Mm-hmm. Before you can begin to express the power and potential of yourself or your brand, you actually have to know it. And I didn't. For a long time, I didn't. And so when anybody would ask, like, what do you, like, you seem really ambitious. Like, what do you want to be? What are you trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. I would have no answer at all until a couple of years ago when we launched Blackbird and I had to do that exercise on myself. And as you know, like, operating on yourself. It's the worst. The worst. So here we are 
creating belief systems for brands and businesses that sit behind their operating systems, that inspire and inform the way that they make decisions for the future of their business and the way they communicate to the world. And I hadn't done my own belief system. So I had to. And that's what I use to like make decisions about my future and what I'm trying to accomplish. Would you recommend that everyone go through that exercise? I would. And like my office seems to be an endless cycle of people who um, need that, who are like, in some cases, very famous and very successful people who you think would have all this figured out. Hmm. And the fact is, it's really hard. And if you achieve a lot at an early age or early in your career, you maybe skip the step of trying to actually figure out who you are, what you want to be. So I had to do that to myself. I got there and it provided me with so much clarity that it's been much easier for me to make decisions about what's right for me to do and maybe what's not. And also to articulate it because I feel like telling your story is also something you have to practice. Yeah, totally. You went to Brandeis University. I did. You majored in English and American literature. More importantly, I met my wife there. That is important, but I don't like the squirrel story, so we're going to talk to her about that. (laughs) Um, so wait, English and American literature yeah. and philosophy. Yeah. But then you went back to school to get an MFA in poetry. Right. Well, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I took the LSATs. I just thought, you know, you're a lawyer or you're a doctor where I grew up. Same. Right? That's what you do. Obviously. Right? I was pre-med in college. So I did apply to law schools and my poetry professor, Olga Brumis, who is, I mean, she's so brilliant and such a creative force. And she made me think very differently about everything in my life, including how to read a story or a poem or how to write one. She just believed in me early on in college. And she called my parents without me knowing and invited them to campus to go to lunch with with me. I mean, it's a pretty bold thing for somebody to do. Yeah. I would freak out if my professor did that. I know. So I'm there eating a tuna salad sandwich with my mom, my dad, and my professor. I know. I'm like, what's going to happen here? Like, what are we actually talking about? <laughs> like, am I getting expelled? <laughs> right. And o- Olga says to my mom and my dad, I understand that Ross has told you that he wants to go to law school. And I know he's even taken the LSATs and he's applied to law <laughs> schools. But I'm here to tell you that he needs to go to poetry school. Wow. <laughs> it's like, what's poetry school? Like, what do you do in poetry school? I didn't even know that was a thing. It's like a big thing. Is it big though? I mean, look, you know, there were there were five students my first year in my class at Washington University. Five. And four of them were getting stipends from the university to go there. I was not. I was the fifth ranked. I was the last ranked. I was the worst of them all, of the five. I was the only one who had to work. So I was working at a bar in St. Louis, Missouri, serving all of them every night and they were getting paid to go to grad school, but I, I was paying to go to grad school to learn how to be a poet. But you obviously loved it. I loved it. I mean, it. you have a poetry book. You have Wallace Stevens selected poems right I have right Wallace here. Stevens right there. There's, this room is filled with poems, and my house is filled with them. And I wrote a book in 2001 called The Cop Who Rides Alone. Yes, you did. I forgot about um, that. I taught poetry at Rhode Island School of Design, at the new school here in New York, and at WashU in St. Louis. And I will go back to doing it one day, to I- teaching. So I would imagine that poetry as a discipline gives you a little bit of a different critical eye to what you do in your job. I think it's an insightful thing to say. Yes, very much. I don't talk about it 
I just sort of use it. Yeah. Like I'll give you an example. So like the worlds we live in are so filled with noise that you can barely find or hear the signal. Yeah. The class that I was teaching at the new school years ago was called the short poem. And instead of it being, you know, sort of write a poem and then edit it, it was basically write a block of words and then subtract. So it was subtractive writing. And what you were doing is essentially. Isn't that editing? Yeah. But like, think about it more like chiseling a piece of art from stone. Okay. So it's much more about what you take away than what you add. And so you make these decisions about what is earning its way onto the page and what's earning its way into the hearts and minds of whoever is reading it. Mm -hmm. And if that mark or that word doesn't earn its spot because it's not doing something you need done, then it just doesn't get to be there. And so it forces this economy of language and economy of thought that is rigorous and difficult, but what's left is so essential. And it gets to the idea that Walter Benjamin had about pure language. And here's what I mean. If I write the word tree, I don't want you to see the word tree. I want you to see the tree. Mm -hmm. But that's a really hard thing to achieve. It's the same thing in marketing. When Nike shows you its logo, they don't want you to think Nike. They want you to feel that there's an athlete in you, right? So that's the same thing that Walter Benjamin was talking about. How do I show you something that makes you feel something and how intentional and deliberate and specific and precise can I be about that? So that's just one example of how, if you think about writing a short poem, which is a super hard thing to do. Um, do you want to take that? I mean, yeah, it's just my son calling That's fine. Me. Like, take that it. might be good on the podcast. Yeah. So we're on Ross's floor in his office. So this is not, we are not fancy. No, I think this is great. Theo? Hello? Hi, Dad. What are you doing? Walking home. Cool. How are your quizzes? I felt pretty good on the science and okay on the finish. I mean, I felt pretty good all together. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Good luck at soccer training, and then I'll see you for dinner afterwards. Okay. Love you. Love you too, honey. Do the best. No, you are. Okay, bye. Bye. Okay, that was the cutest thing ever. How old is he? Ten. So, so he doesn't get to have an iPhone, and he doesn't get to have an Apple Watch. What is that? How is it's he It's some janky watch that my wife got him that like has an AT&T SIM card in it, so he can call like any of the numbers we allow in there. So he's literally like walking home, talking on his watch. He calls me every day at 3.35. And, so cute. And he's like, hey, dad. It's the best. I really wish I knew about that before I bought my kids' iPhones when they were like seven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where we were, but we were talking about poems. I know where we were. That's my job. Yeah. In fact, what was your first job? Oh, okay. So like my first job job in the world was I was uh, working in a women's shoe store. But that was at what age? I was 16 and I was a stock boy and I was the worst. Like I was the – I couldn't – I don't know why I was so bad at it. But like all I could do is think about when's lunch and then like when do I get to go home. I was just bad. And I have an incredible work ethic today. But when I was 15, 16 years old, what a nightmare. Like why anyone would allow me to work in their establishment, I don't know. I think they were doing my mom a favor because she used to buy shoes in there sometimes and like she was really nice. Anyways, my first job in the industry was working for Spike Lee in oh, Brooklyn. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So I worked for 40 Acres and a Mule when I was 21, and it was between my first and second year of graduate school. 
Amazing. It was an incredible experience. How did you even get that job? So when you go to poetry school... <laughs> it all comes back to the poetry. <laughs> well, that's where I was. When you go to poetry school, like it's really tough to take five poetry classes in a semester. That's a lot. Okay. So you're reading a lot of critical thought and you're writing a lot of poetry. And it's just, it's just intense. And I was like, you know what? Like maybe I'll take four poetry courses and like some other Joker class. And that other Joker class was screenwriting because you didn't have to go. So you could just stay home. You just had to write a screenplay. Got it. Now, I had no idea how to write a screenplay, but I wrote one. And it was called The Excellent Diner. And the metaphor was that in every diner, like in the basement waiting to come out and take over – is Wendy from Wendy's. And they were going to, it's like every diner is ultimately going to become a franchise of a fast food restaurant. Wait, it's not, it's not George Costanza and Jerry. No, exactly. (laughs) And it it was like a, this was like a dystopian worldview that like every independent diner one day is going to become a McDonald's, Burger King or Wendy's. And it wasn't a good screenplay. Let me tell you that. But I think all the others that semester must have sucked because the professor of the course, whose name is Buzz Hirsch, who was the producer of the movie Silkwood, loved my script. And he gave me the $100 prize for the best screenplay. And he said, I think you could one day become like an actual screenwriter. And I think he was completely, maybe, I don't know, I thought maybe he's full of shit. But he introduced me over email to Spike Lee. That's the coolest thing ever. He said, Spike, like this kid has some potential. You should have him intern for you. And so, like, I got my shot and I got to intern for him and read scripts. I think I read 500 or 600 scripts that summer. And my job was to help find projects that Spike could direct or produce, especially from writers and filmmakers that were being ignored by the Hollywood system, mostly women and people of color. And so that was an incredible experience for me because I got to sort of like survey a broad range of creative projects, things I never would have gotten to see. And then actually like tell him what was worth his time and what was not. Because so much material was flowing in, he couldn't possibly read it himself. That's incredible. Again, to carry over the theme of being really bad at your job, Mm -hmm. I was really bad at that job. Really? I don't believe it. Let me tell you why. The first script that I read that I was required to write coverage on, meaning it was coming in from an agent who was so important that like Spike needed to know if this was something that was good or bad, right? Either way, he's going to have to reply. Like he's not going to be able to ignore it and he has to have a perspective on it, Mm -hmm. right? So I read this script and I have to write like a five page essentially report (laughs) on whether it's worth it or not. And it's a boxing movie and I fall asleep in the middle of the big fight. It's such a bad script in my mind at the time. It's just not worth anybody's time. I couldn't even stay awake reading it. And so I, I like eviscerated this project. I mean, I destroyed it in five pages of like my best prose about why this is Just not something Spike Lee should pay attention to. And so he was like, cool, passed. So we passed on it, right? Like this movie went on to become an Academy Award winning <laughs> film starring Russell Crowe called Cinderella Man and produced by my now friend, Brian Grazer. And I've never told Brian. Okay, so we need to get this episode to like, Brian. That actually happened, right? And like, I don't even think Spike realizes that that he probably doesn't remember, nor does he even care. But 
That's an I, incredible story, Yeah, Ross. but like, it's just an example of being really bad at your job or not having any clue what you're doing. Wow. You really <laughs> fucked that up. Yes. We could <laughs> spend the entire rest of this episode talking about the things that I've fucked up if you want, because there's a lot. I mean, it's amazing. All right. 2004, you join MTV. Yeah, I did. It was, MTVU. Right. I came on to join Stephen Friedman and launch MTVU, a network for college students. And it reached over 10 million college kids on like 700 campuses. Um, incredible experience. Like, look, it's 2020. So we're looking at what MTV is today. Mm -hmm. But like, rewind to 2004. No, it was, it was the most major yeah. thing. And look, I love um, MTV today. I think it's, again, doing a really interesting things under Chris McCarthy. But, but back then, Chris McCarthy, who runs MTV today, started with me at MTVU and we worked together. And it was like a dream team back then. The people who were working at MTVU included Stephen Friedman, who is like one of the best thinkers in the world today, like especially around social action and political movements. And Carolyn Everson, mm -hmm. who, you know, is the head of marketing revenue for Facebook. And Chris McCarthy, who runs like 19 networks including MTV, VH1, Comedy Central, over at Viacom. And so the opportunity to work with that kind of talent at such an early point in all of our careers, we had no idea what we were doing, but we, we went for it together. And we made a successful business happen in 2004, and then everyone went on and had really interesting careers. It's almost like if you went to grade school with those people because of the early stage you guys were at. So it's like when you go to grade school with people, like you are connected forever. Totally. So your career was, I mean, 13 years there. You got promoted several times. What was the secret to sort of your, I guess, your rise in a very corporate structure? Because you don't strike me as a corporate person. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. Look, I never fit in. Like, I never felt like I belonged. I never felt accepted by the cool kids. And I just had to live with that. But- I think I figured out pretty early that it's not like we're all playing with one currency. And what I mean by that is everybody's got a different set of values and everybody values different things. And so like in a gigantic corporation like that, everybody wanted something different out of the experience. Some people wanted a shit ton of money. Some people wanted a lot of power. Other people wanted the world to know who they were. And then some people just wanted to be taken seriously or be invited to the party or no famous people. But everybody had their own currency. What did you want? Well, what I wanted to do was figure out everybody else's currency. Oh. I was trying to understand, like, what's the tax I'm going to have to pay you to not get in the way of this idea? And what is the currency that you're going to value most so that you'll get excited about it and co-author it, right? That you'll not just, like, invest in this idea with me, but you'll believe it's also your own. Mm -hmm. Like that's what taught me that the more people you can bring into an idea, the better that idea will become and the likelihood of it actually seeing the light of day increases exponentially. And so that's how I was approaching everything I was doing at Viacom. And, and I, there was a really big switch in, I guess, like the way that I approached life inside that company when two things happened. One, 
like less serious and kind of funny is that a couple of people pulled me aside and they were like, you're an asshole. And I think you need people in your life like that, right? Wade Davis, who went on to become the chief financial officer was like, look, man, like everywhere you go, it just, I can feel like the bad side of your ambition and it's uncomfortable to be around. And I think it's like kind of self-sabotage. So are you saying that you were cutthroat? Not that I was cutthroat, but that like there was a sense that I felt entitled to more. I think because you just wanted more. I wanted more and I always wanted more, but like that doesn't always feel like a collaborative thing if you don't manage yourself the right way. And I wasn't, I was sending off like the wrong signals and it was all about me, you know, and I wasn't listening. And if I was listening, I wasn't hearing. Hmm. And the reason that's, those are the words that I use are because of the more serious thing that happened, which is that I developed, I don't even know why, a condition in my inner ear and brain, which I don't talk about often, but I was the 137th person in this country Wow! diagnosed with a condition where I had holes in my inner ear in the lining between my brain and my ear. Here's what that means like sound would come into my ear and then there was nothing to protect my brain from that sound. Like the sound would come in and actually go right through my ear and hit my brain. And what does that feel like? It knocks you out. Wow. You pass out. Wow. And so I was passing out all over the place, like behind the wheel of a car, <gasps> like, Ross, oh my God. Uh, you know, on a conference call in a studio edit at a concert. In a conversation like this, if the tone of your voice was just right, you could knock me out just by talking. I've never heard of this. It's called superior semicircular canal dehiscence. No one will remember that. And when it gets really bad, you develop autophony, which is that the sound of your own voice is so loud in your head that you can't talk without passing out. Jeez. So I had to stop talking. And that's the moment where I had no choice How but to he you, listen and to hear. How long did you have to stop talking for? A year. Wait, what do you mean? Seriously, you didn't talk? Barely. Did you just write? Yep. I had okay. to take a leave of absence for months. I had to be tested at Johns Hopkins to see which ear was worse. And I'll write a book about that one day. What causes it? Don't know. You walk around with like Don't a dry know. erase board? I was the 65th. I did. I was the 65th person to have the surgery in America to fix it. That's a craniotomy. You cut open your head, you lift up your brain, and you plug those holes. And no one knew. I didn't talk about it. I, they just knew something was wrong with me, and I was changing pretty quickly. But the metaphor is apt because at the same time, like I said, I wasn't listening to other people the way I should have been, and I definitely wasn't hearing them. I was just hearing myself. So I had to change who I was to grow into a better self. And having that all happen in the same you know, year or two period – to change my life. Well, I love that you went through that crazy situation, which sounds really scary, but you're afraid of squirrels and birds. Like, there's something <laughs> really disproportionate there. I, oh, you can talk about that with your therapist. I do. I should. Tell me what was Scratch and how did you come up with this? Because we met in a couple different weird ways. I feel like LA was second to when we met the first time where we sat yeah. next to each other at yeah. a dinner, yeah. some random dinner. Yeah, I remember it. And I remember you telling me about Scratch, this black ops yeah. 
thing that you started. It was like the CIA level marketer. Yeah. I mean, like, how did you come up with this? Here's how I came up with it. We all knew at Viacom that television viewing was not going to last like the glory days of TV. We're behind. We're, well, at least cable television. Mm-hmm. We're not ahead of us, uh-huh. right? We knew that much. Mm-hmm. And we weren't quite sure what to do about it. And Scratch was one of the ideas for something you could do about it. And here, here's the idea. If you think about it, at the time, especially in the early 2000s, and still to some degree today, most television networks, especially cable television networks, rely or over-depend on one pretty unnatural resource, which is attention. Mm. It's pretty hard to get attention. Well said. It's pretty hard to keep it. Well said. So today we call that the attention economy. When I started Scratch in 2008, 2009, we didn't have the right language for this. But essentially what we were talking about is like the core business of a television network or a media company was going to have to change. It was unsustainable. And that's because we were measuring attention by ratings points from Nielsen. Right. What a bizarre way still today to actually account for anything in the attention economy. I so agree. Although I kind of want to be one of those people because I feel like I watch TV like it's my job. Yeah, you want a Nielsen box. Yeah, I, I actually I totally- have friends who have one. They're crazy. There's also like a lot of people who I think you know, died with their TV and Nielsen box on and no one's found them yet. So (laughs) it looks like they're still watching the channel. So we have to go get those Nielsen boxes. But if you back up a second, what I started to think about with my colleagues was, well, what are the other natural resources here? Like, look around this amazing media company with Nickelodeon and Comedy Central and MTV and VH1 and CMT and Paramount. And look how many talented, extraordinary people work here. I mean, whether it's graphic design or animation or artist development or music or even social media, like the birth of social media, we were good at so many things and we were great or best in the world at so many things. And we just considered all those things part of our core business, like part of the everyday job of making television, distributing it, and driving revenue from ad sales. Okay. What I said was, like, what if we thought a little bit differently about all those capabilities and cost centers? What if we looked at all the things that we're good or great at, and we started to make those capabilities available to clients in the outside world? Like, for example, we were really, really good at Viacom at the time, especially at MTV and Comedy Central and Nickelodeon, at attracting young people extraordinary talent to want to come work at our company. We were really good at recruiting. And once they got to the company back then, we were really good at empowering them to innovate. But most of our clients sucked at that. Like most of the brands and businesses that we were talking to and supporting, like just didn't know how to attract that many at the time millennials to come like light up their companies. Mm-hmm. One of those was General Motors, which was having trouble attracting young people to come work for the bankrupt car company in Detroit. And here's the problem with that. At the time in 2010, 2009, 40% of the car buying market were millennials, but only 6% of General Motors workforce were millennials. That's the problem right there. So Scratch stepped in and said, hey, if there's anything we're good at here, 
in this media company. We can do it for you. And we started sort of doing really large deals. And they were a combination of consulting deals and like creative agency and strategy deals. And we were supporting companies on the outside that needed the same kind of things that our own company was good at and was doing well. Um, research, design, artist development, content, distribution, HR and recruiting, for example. And so we started to get really well known for that. We started to make real money doing it. And so all of a sudden you've got this thing called Scratch, which we started from scratch um, because we were challenging ourselves to think from scratch. And it's this little engine that could, that is really disruptive because what it's doing is sort of turning the company inside out and making what we're good at available to the outside world and bringing back revenue that wasn't distribution fees and wasn't advertising fees. So what was it? So all of a sudden a media company is making money as an agency. Now that seems not so far from the imagination today, but back in the day when we started, no one was doing that. So it landed us on the front page of the New York Times, it landed us in Fast Company and Fortune, et cetera, and it made people think differently about our whole media company. Well, you know, to me, listening to you, it was really Blackbird 1.0. It was. It's exactly right. That's how I think about it too. Blackbird is scratch, but on the outside. Yeah. Right? And I don't know if it's possible to start a version of that inside a media company anymore. I know a lot of people have tried since then. A lot of people continue to do that in some shape or form, but it's different today. Mm -hmm, for sure. What do you think now, you know, sort of peering back at everything, if you can name one thing, what is your greatest skill? So my greatest skill, I think, is the power of potential. Helping brands, businesses, and human beings see their own potential mm -hmm. and have the courage and confidence to go achieve it or exceed it. I think like what I want people to feel when they leave any interaction with me is that more is possible than before. I love that. That like they've learned something about themselves or they felt something new, like something in them woke up. And now they're going to go do it. I think people are going to feel that way after they hear you speak on this episode. Oh. For sure. So we're sitting here on my floor and we've got like my table in front of me. I'm looking at the things that these are things that you see on this table that I believe in. Right. So Wolves Whiskey is the first whiskey company in Los Angeles. Nomadica Wines started by Emma and Kristen, who, who came out of Harvard Business School and Harvard Law and started a wine company in Los Angeles. And you can see how beautiful that is. And this wine tastes even better than it looks. And then Aishwarya Ayer launched Brightland, which is a new kind of olive oil. But that's going to be the next Williams-Sonoma, that company. And these are three businesses that we've invested in. Um, our fund, which is called Lunch Partners. This is all about potential. We've found now 10 entrepreneurs who had a big idea, were super passionate about it, in a space we felt was primed for high growth. And we made a bet in our fund that we could help them get there. It's no different than anything we're talking about that I've always wanted to do with my life, which is find potential and empower it. Mm -hmm. Empower people to achieve what they actually have in their heart. And these are three examples. I wish the whiskey were open so you could try it, but. Well, I'm glad it's not open. I would definitely have the olive oil. Whiskey is not my thing, but the bottle is really it's cool. It's beautiful. So hold it in your hand. You can lift it up. 
And you see it's very heavy. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. So you're looking, you're holding sheepskin around the bottle. So cool. And it's delicious. So this is why I wanted to start Lunch Partners, this venture fund, to find potential in businesses and in entrepreneurs and then go help them achieve. But if you look at our investors, if you look at the fund itself, there are 15 of us in this fund and we all put our money together personally and invest as a group. And we get behind these entrepreneurs and actually help their businesses have a better chance of succeeding. Everybody in this fund is a business leader, most of whom people probably know from City, from Petco, from Boston Consulting Group, from WPP, from Viacom, from Warner Media, from Showtime to um, Coca-Cola to Hilton. These are all executives who are at the top of their game, who have all decided to work together to share information, share deal flow, and share whatever expertise we've got to put all of that in a very focused way behind these entrepreneurs to help them win. And did this idea happen over lunch? It did happen over lunch. And and by the way, like the whole point of that lunch was that there are all these business leaders at the top of their game who could be doing so much more than their day job. So again, it was about potential. In this case, the potential of people who you might know because they're all kind of famous in business, but there's still so much more that they can do and want to do outside of, the day job. of that day job. Talk to me about, I guess, the IRL logos on your table. Right. So we print in 3D all of our clients' logos. And since the launch of Known, we're now like trying to keep up with, there's a lot more logos to print. So what you're seeing are a, a bunch of our clients. Because, you know, here's the thing, like when you work for any of these brands, they become a part of your life. Like you go to bed and you actually dream about the people who work there and about the brands and products and services themselves. Totally. It's kind of weird, but like you go to bed with all your clients every night and you wake up with them. So you better freaking <laughs> figure out how to like or love them. And by 3D printing their logos, it makes them very real in my life. Like I live with these as if they're characters in my life because they are, right? So here's Good Plus Foundation. That's Jessica Justice, Seinfeld. Yeah. And like, I think about them all the time. And in fact, I just texted Jessica to ask how they're doing because they're all top of mind all the time. So I think when you go to sleep thinking about your clients and wake up thinking about them, that's also called stress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Yeah, not always. How do you stay so innovative? Like, what are you reading? Where do you get your inspiration from? What's your magic? I'm in a really lucky spot right now because I'm completely surrounded, like 360 by some of the most fascinating people in the world. And I intentionally put myself now in rooms where I'm the least interesting person. Yeah, but you're invited. That's the point. Or I sneak in. You do not sneak I'm in. I'm not always invited. Like, I'll give you an example. One of the things that gets me most excited is the work I do with the Guggenheim <clears throat> Museum. So the Guggenheim Museum is literally creating the Guggenheim of the future. And they have the most brilliant, genius of an artistic director, Nancy Spector. And she asked me to put together a group of thought leaders who could help her and them imagine the future of this like essential institution. Mm -hmm. And so when you're around executives from Amazon and Google and Adidas and Facebook and Twitter and like the list goes on and on, and you're, you're working together 
on a shared vision for the future mm -hmm. of a cultural institution that important? Yeah. How is it possible for that to not rub off on you in some way? Do you have a mentor? I have a lot. In fact, on our episode, so you made, you said some really nice things about my podcast, which is- All think, true. <laughs> the podcast is Think About This with Shelly Palmer and me. And we were just talking about doing an episode on mentors. You should. And- you know, the reason we want to do it is because one of us had a mentor that we shared, um, David Stern, who we had on the episode so right sorry. before he right before he passed away. I thought of you when I read that. And, you know, Shelley knew him much better than I did. I got to know him later. But what an extraordinary life and career. And so we decided, like, maybe we should, you know, dedicate an, an episode to mentors. Not just ours, but like other people's. And so much of Leave Your Mark is about mentorship. Yes. In fact, like the whole podcast is, I think, a mentor to so many people who I'm, listen to it. I'm glad you think that because then I'm doing my job. Well I know that. Right. You can't listen to this podcast and not, besides maybe this episode, <laughs> and not learn something and feel not just inspired, but like in some way armed to go out in the world and, and go do it. Do you want your check wired or mailed? <laughs> so... I'll tell you who one of my greatest mentors is, and nobody knows him. I mean, my circle knows him, but his name is Harry Oppenheimer. Okay. And Harry Oppenheimer lives in Chicago. And um, Is he part of that family? He is what family? Oppen isn't Oppenheimer. Oh, not the Oppenheimer family. Okay. I mean, I, if he is, he's not telling me, and he's a lot more money than I thought. Okay. Um, <laughs> but he, he's someone in my life that I've grown very close to who reminds me to take none of this shit seriously. And I mean, like, you know, you said before, like, there's probably a lot of stress in, in my day or my night. Yeah, there is. And without somebody like Harry Oppenheimer to, to remind you. me to mm -hmm. be, to remind me about like the power of being silly and goofy. Yeah. I mean, this guy is the king of pranks. He goes around and messes with people all the time. And when he does it, I mean, it's like the stories of what he has done. He just sort of makes people think differently about their own like their own way of being. I'm going to give you one example, okay? So he went to one of the fanciest restaurants in the city and he is very good at making sounds and he made the sound of a cricket. So you're in this like restaurant with people paying like, you know, minimum $1,000 a table, right? And it's like, this is like, this is the top of the top, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the circles you travel in. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, so <laughs> he makes this cricket sound. And you can see that it's pissing people off because they're like, how is it possible that in this nice of a restaurant, there's, there's a freaking cricket? <laughs> and it's like, nobody can believe this is actually happening. It's so disruptive. Like, you can't ignore it. It's so loud because he's so loud at it. He's doing it. Don't tell him the squirrel story. Oh, I hope he oh, doesn't know, hear this. He knows, he knows. He knows. He's also good at the squirrel thing. So all these people are getting really pissed off. So what does Harry do? He pretends to find the cricket on the floor by his table oh. and he stamps it out really hard. He kills the cricket oh, with his foot. So you just did what everyone in the restaurant did. They all turned their sympathy to the cricket. To the cricket and they lost all their anger and like indignation. Yeah. And so all of a sudden he makes the cricket the sound of the cricket dying. And he drags oh. it out in a way that like this this cricket has this elaborate, painful dramatic this is horrible death. but it's not a real cricket it's just him but then did he tell everyone it was a joke no he didn't and everyone gets up and walks over to him and goes why did you do that that's horrible how could you kill that cricket and now he's completely turned everybody like 180 the whole restaurant's 180 you have 
like all these fancy diners who have gone from like just like so pissed at the maitre d to being now so angry at harry oppenheimer and he's absorbing all of this but kind of laughing the whole time because it's like seriously people this like is really his, this is his adrenaline and i love that shit because it reminds you just like what are we doing here like what are we doing here i don't know like where i am right now i could look at this as a job or i could look at this as like the greatest joy slash game slash joke of all time. I'm having fun. Like, if you do not have fun with this stuff, just give up and go home and die. Yeah. You're right. You're totally right. Like the cricket. <laughs> do you have any regrets? I, my only regrets are when I, when like my instincts and intuition tell me to do something and I don't listen. That's really it. The biggest decisions in my life have not been rational and have not been maybe on paper always like the exact right bet. But like if you go to the blackjack table with me, I'm going to do some things at that table that mathematically you're going to be like, that's the wrong move. Hmm. Right? Like nobody wants to play blackjack with me. So like, I pissed the rest of the players off. I was going to say, please don't tell me you sit in the anchor. I only go with my friends because they know I'm like this. But I make choices that are often irrational. But then and, you're fucking up the rest of the table. Well, that's okay. Because you know what they all do? And I know this is going to sound a little weird. They all end up like putting their money on my hand. Oh. Right? And because they're like, because I'm doing stuff at the table. And I and no, I'm not counting cards. But like, I'm good. And I'm winning. And it's not because I'm doing things the way you're supposed to do it. In fact, well, I'm doing things the way you're not supposed to do it. Well, that is certainly a metaphor for your entire life. So that is just perfect. <laughs> and by the way... We should play because I'm very good and I follow the rules. I need you to help me maybe like make the right decisions, even if they're not the intuitive ones. Well, I can tell you, I am fearless. I'm going to watch Use you that play. word. And my husband watches me and he gets nauseous because I'm like, no, let's just, you know, double down, triple down, whatever. No big deal. So big question and the end of what is such a joyous conversation. How do you want to leave your mark on this world? What do you want people to remember about Ross Martin? I want the most um, – how do I say this? I want people who work with me or who know me to discover something about themselves and then surprise themselves with what they're capable of achieving. And whether that's in the context of – like work itself or family or friends, um, it's the same. And for as long as you're, you're with me and we're in each other's lives, I want you to be able to do things you just, you didn't know were possible and then really enjoy that. Such a gracious sentiment because most people answer that question with something to do with their own ego, their own professional success, their own sort of like, you know, marquee moment on the billboard. Mm -hmm. So it's a great way of thinking. And I have to say that, you know, we don't get to see each other that often, but for the times that we have been together and certainly from reading your tweets and, and listening to your podcast and really following your work, which I have done, 
you're so incredibly inspiring in so so many different ways, not just, not just in your work, but also your whole thing with transparency and everything you're sort of preaching about um, in business. And I think you should be incredibly proud. And I think hearing your whole story from start to finish, and I know there's much more, but you know, people don't have all day. Um, (laughs) I really hope that you see yourself now clearly because I certainly see you clearly. And I think everyone who knows you and loves you, see you clearly. Thank and you so much. I think everyone's just so proud of you. It's such an honor to be on your podcast and oh, thank you. to be one of the people that's inspired by it every time you publish one. So thank you. Thanks for letting me be part of this. Oh, Ross, it's a love fest. <laughs> thanks so much for listening to leave your mark. The podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best selling book, leave your mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalickxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalick. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.